we are. Thank you, Cassie. You can come back and pick it all up in a while. Well, good morning to you all. <laughs> no, it's still no, no, it's still morning, still morning. Today we're we're um, back to our journey through the book of Judges, and uh, the last time that we we were reading Judges is a fortnight ago, I think, and Matt was uh, taking us through what chapter was it Matt was it chapter 10 yep yep chapter 10 and I remember I wrote this down Matt said to us that this stuck in my mind privilege is a distinct spiritual disadvantage did I get that right yeah yeah it really struck me and we saw the people of Israel in a time when they were prospering and prosperity leads of course to sometimes very poor outcomes I learned um long ago to understand the cycle of the book of Judges with the um, mnemonic ABCD standing for apostasy, battery, cry, deliverance. And that's the cycle that just goes on and on. You see the people of Israel uh, doing well and then it's downhill from there. All of a sudden they're, 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 they're apostate, they're worshipping everything under the sun. Um, then battery, the, the enemies of Israel come and invade and beat them up. They cry out to God and God delivers them with a judge. And it's all okay for a brief period. And then A, B, C, D, on and on it goes. I'm just going to read a little bit from uh, Judges 10 because uh, although our reading's from Judges 11 this morning, this is the background. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals. Listen to this list. They served the Baals, the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aaron, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Whew. And because the, the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. That doesn't sound like a good year. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead. Now, our reading this morning is going to come from chapter um, 11. And Cohen, where are you, Cohen? Oh, there you are. Come up. Have you got a microphone? You have. You're all set to go. We're, we're nearly there. The Israelites cried out. To, no, no, stay here. You're very welcome. You, <laughs> uh, the Israelites cried out to God saying, God, we've sinned. We've sinned against you forsaking our God. And this time God says to them, but you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. God says, go and cry out to the gods that you've chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. The Israelites return to the Lord again and say, we've sinned. Do with us whatever you think, but please rescue us now. And God could bear Israel's misery no longer. Chapter 11. Jeff, is it on? Right. Jephthah the Gilead, Jeph, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. 
So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, Did, didn't you hate, hate me and drive me away from my father's house? Why, why do you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And the, and he repeated all his words before the Lord of Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, "What do you have against me, me that have that you have attacked my country?" Thank you, Cohen. And at that point, Jephthah shows surprising brilliance because he answers the the the. Um, the question from the king of Ammon with a lengthy historical summary of Israel under Moses, their exodus from Egypt and their entry into the promised land and who they fought and who they didn't fight, the lands they went through, the lands they went around. And we're not going to read it all this morning because, frankly, it's quite dizzying, it's quite detailed. If Pastor David was here, he could make good of it, but I would make bad of it, so we're just going to leave it to you to read it. But Jephthah shows an amazing degree of acumen. He is all over this topic. And that's surprising, really, because as you heard Cohen read to us, he has been in exile. He's been living in a place called Tob, which I I don't know where Tob is, but it sounds ordinary, doesn't it? Tob. (laughs) He's been out there forced out by his brothers who disowned him. And he's been living with, as the Bible says, a band of scoundrels. And so how does this um, young man living among scoundrels in a nondescript place called Tob come to have such a grasp on the history of Israel? A summary of what he says is this. He replies to the king of Ammon, Your God says this land is yours. Our God says this land is ours. There's only one way to settle this. We'll meet on the battlefield. And of course, that's exactly how God's will was interpreted for centuries and and millennia. And even into the modern age, that's been true, that God's will has been determined by who wins a battle. And what what an ugly notion that is. At the end of the speech that Jephthah makes, we didn't read it this morning, the king of Ammon paid no attention to the message that Jephthah sent him. And that's all we're going to read this morning. Now, the story of Jephthah has two halves. This is just the first half. If you know the second half, um, I'm going to encourage you to try and put it out of your mind. Now, it's not an easy thing to put out of your mind, but if you know the rest of the story, don't think about it this morning because... Next Sunday's reading will cover that. 
So this morning we are just looking at the, the formation, if you like, of this, this young man. And in the verses that Cohen read for us there are just some beautiful cues, cl- clues as to who this mighty warrior is. First clue is something really interesting, just a little word that Jephthah uses when he's um, replying to the elders of Gilead. So Gilead uh, has sent its best men out, the leaders, the prominent men, to find a new champion. And they've gone to Tob to find this bloke with his scoundrels. It feels like they're scratching the barrel, doesn't it? But when they go there, um, Jephthah responds to them and says, "But, but hang on, you hate me. You didn't, aren't you the people that joined with my brothers and drove me out? And their reply is really interesting. They say, nevertheless, nevertheless, we're turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be head over all who live in Gilead. Now, this is the thing. Here comes. Jephthah then replies this way in verse 9. He says, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and suppose the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? Now, that word really, does that, does that stand out to you a little bit? It's an odd word, isn't it? If he is actually going to become the commander-in-chief, if he's going to become the mighty warrior right here, right now, and off we go and kill the Ammonites, why does he say to the elders of Gilead, will I really be your king? Can you hear, can you hear a vulnerability in the question that he's asking? It's odd, isn't it? And I think... What you see in that moment is not a mighty warrior, not then. What you see is a little boy who was utterly and violently rejected by his brothers. What we hear is this little boy asking if he can come home. Second clue, the opening sentence for today's reading, Judges 11.1. It begins this way, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead and his mother was a prostitute. A mighty warrior? He's a bloke living in Tob with a bunch of scoundrels. He's not a mighty warrior. Not yet. So this description is uh, a picture of where, where it will be. It's, a, it's sort of a, a historical introduction. He will become a mighty warrior, and, and that's true, but not right now. Right now, he's a lost young man among scoundrels. The next sentence, his father was Gilead. That makes him a prince, doesn't it? Gilead is pros- possibly the best known of the judges of Israel and the one that the Bible records his his uh, deeds in greatest detail. He was a great man. And this young fellow is a prince and potential inheritor of the courage and glory of his father's um, story. Unless, unless, of course, third phrase, his mother was a prostitute. Can you have two more contrasting sentences? His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. It's like One of those equations you did at school where one bit cancels out the other bit, it starts off good and then it ends nowhere. What an incredible tension there is in those two phrases. Huge, huge potential having Gilead as your father, but an even bigger liability having an unknown prostitute as your mother. You get this sense of what might have been. He's a, he's a man with bad blood. He's a disgrace 
to be hidden from sight, to be banished to Tob, an embarrassment to his family and and an embarrassment to the eldership of Gilead. Third clue, are you getting a bit of a sense of who this fellow is? The third clue is the, the amazing historical narrative that he offers to the king of Ammon. I've mentioned it already, and it really is worth a read. In his amazing grip of the fine details, and it is fine, he knows this story inside out. In that intensity, I can hear him holding on tight to what he believes is his. He's banished, he's nothing, he's nobody, but he has this vision of who he might be, of of something enormously bigger than what he is right now. He's got an attachment to an identity that other people have ripped away from him. They really have. They banished him. And he, he, he's living in exile, but he, he holds this identity tightly. It's as though he must at some point have heard this story many times to learn it, but you get the idea that he has repeated it many more times. It's a narrative that preoccupies him and he's obsessed with it. Last clue to who he is comes from um, uh, the story that David, Pastor David, led us through in chapter 9. I think David said, was this the one where he said it was the, the ugliest part of Judges? Well, I can't remember quite, but the story is that Abimelech, son of Gilead, slaughtered the 70 brothers that he had so that he could become the leader. What does that say to us? Well, Abimelech, there was one that got away, wasn't there? A younger one who went and taunted them. But Abimelech destroys the whole generation that could potentially contest his leadership. He, he, he murders 70 of his own brothers. But what about Jephthah? Apparently Jephthah was such a nobody, he, he didn't matter to such a degree that he wasn't even worth killing. Sobering to think of that, isn't it? He was absolutely nothing in anybody's eyes, of so little value that Abimelech didn't even bother killing him. Well, a a real change in pace now because I want to tell you some stories. And while I do, Darren is going to come up and uh, do a drawing for us over here on his easel. Do you think that's an elegant easel? I really do. I like it. So... While Darren's working away, I want to show you some scenes from my childhood. Now, I'm not trying to compare myself to Jephthah, really, but wait and I'll show you. So, see this picture? Can you identify me in those? Well, the first thing you notice about those people is that they're not not a gang of scoundrels, are they? Scallywags, maybe, but not scoundrels. So I, I'm there. Who can who can uh, spot me? Anybody got any ideas? The biggest. Did you say the biggest dag? <laughs> the little head. Where? Ah, uh, uh, right at the top. That's my that's my brother. That's my brother Hamish. The little tiny head. Any other guesses? <laughs> no, I don't know why. His, his name was um, Stephen, so why it has an R, I don't know. I don't know. No, look, well, I'll tell you where I am. I am 
the boy that's just below my little brother's head and I'm hanging on to something and hanging down like this. See, see with the white shirt? That's me. All, all of these boys, we lived in about five houses all in a row in the street that I grew up in. And it was a wonderful childhood, it really was. It was as close to idyllic as you can imagine. We lived in the, um, right on the edge of the Sydney Foreshores National Park. So all of our houses, to the right, you, you went into bush that went to the harbour. And we all just grew up in this phenomenal place. A couple more slides to show you. These, these cannons, there's another cannon one, let's have that. These were just just down the hill from us was these cannons and we would just go and play forts and wars. You know how kids do that? But we had real guns, like real guns <laughs> and real forts. Now, the next one is a dungeon. This dungeon was just open, but I never saw it like that. I've never seen it like that till I found this photo because see that dark line? I was going to bring a little pointer. I could point with this, but I don't think it would work. That doesn't work, does it? <laughs> see, see the dark line on the far wall, about this far off the ground, like a watermark. Well, throughout my childhood, this was flooded to that depth, and it was absolutely pitch black because you go through two or three turns to get to there, and it was utterly black. And we had, you remember what torches were like 40 years ago before they invented LED bulbs? And you had these little wire bulbs that would pop and, and batteries that would fade and you know, all of that. And they were made of metal and you always had to go bang, 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 bang to make them work. And so we'd take our torches in there banging and hoping and then it would go dark. And, and it, was, it was flooded and there were just bits of wood that we used to sort of balance on to get in there. And just back here and upwards there was an air vent. I know it was round because it didn't let any light in. But as soon as we went in there, some other scallywag from the gang would go to the air vent and start making ghost noises. And, <laughs> and honestly, like it was just how we didn't lose somebody or drown somebody in there, I just don't know. But an extraordinary childhood. Last picky. That's the mast off the Sydney. It's a huge thing. And there's a dividing line because... All the boys in the picture who were older than me went to the top of that, not just once but often. Me, no. I was, see, there's this cutoff. I wasn't good enough. For some reason, I was like, I was the dividing line between the real fun and the little kids' stuff. Just go, can you go back to me in the tree again? Just for a moment. And there we are. And, and, I sort of look at myself there and I think, I'm just trying so hard to join in and be one of the big boys, but I just wasn't one of the big boys. And what was worse, I had this stupid habit as a child. When I went to sleep, I used to always put my ear on the pillow like this. Can you see that? It feels comforting even to this day. <laughs> but I don't do it anymore because the result was that for most of my childhood, I looked like that. And that's what, I think that's why I'm hanging like this, so you can't actually see this. And all that I'm trying to get at here is to say that no matter how idyllic and how perfect your childhood was, and mine was pretty close, we also have all 
lived through the very unique pains that form us. Not so long after that photograph, um, my, uh, my mother had a stroke and we didn't live with my parents for years after that. We lived with our grandparents and uh, our, our week was a um, night spent in the waiting room at the hospital while Dad talked to Mum and then back to Grandmother. That went on for so many, many, many months. All of us have the things that have hurt us and the wounds that we carry. I'm not trying to compare myself to Jeff Thayer in any way except to say that each of us has a story. Each of us has a backstory, if you like. We all know what it's like to be ignored or overlooked. We've all been the last one to get picked for the sport team. Although maybe we haven't, I certainly have, but if you're, I guess if you're fit and then you weren't, you might have been like Richard. He was the first person to get picked. No. Not? No. Nicole, sorry, it's Nicole. I knew it was one of you. Nicole was the first one to get picked. Richard just sat well to the side. (laughs) Each of us has such a unique journey, don't we? But that journey has involved hurt, We've all tried to impress people bigger than us or smarter than us or more popular than us. We've all tried desperately to fit in. We've probably at some point all compromised our best values in order to win approval from other people. We've told jokes that we're no longer proud of. We've exaggerated the truth in all sorts of contexts, whatever. We've been in that situation where our frailty, our sense of inferiority has fueled our our course. And so it goes on. And when we hear Jephthah saying those few words, will you really, will you really make me the head over the people? We can we can have a sense of his thirst for approval, for his longing to have significance in the eyes of other people. He longs to have what his father had, the ability to lead, the ability to be great in his eyes. He longs for it, but it's nowhere near him. And then suddenly, suddenly, an opportunity opens up. Jephthah's driven. He's driven by the events that formed him, his father, his mother, the treatment of his brothers, the elders of Gilead who joined in expelling him. And now he's the last one. Everybody's dead. It's just him. And you can hear the voices in his head that are driving him onwards. Memories of pain, memories of pleasure perhaps, resentments, injuries, plans for justice, retribution, ambition, on and on it goes. You can get a sense that that this fellow is, is, is now driven hard towards this completely unexpected moment in his life. And that's where I'd like to delve a little bit deeper this morning. Have a look at Darren's drawing. What do you see on that on that face? You can't see the face's detail, but what does it conjure up in you? Yes, longing. It's beautiful work, Darren. Don't rush. I'm just 
taking a moment to somebody who's yeah longing is probably the right word isn't it but think also about the the things that we now know about him about his loneliness and his um his back yeah bring it over a bit Darren I think that'd be that'd be terrific it looks to me that He's also wanting something. He's, he's wanting to be led himself. He's wanting to be called. He's wanting to be welcomed. He's wanting, obviously, he's wanting somebody to take his hand. He's looking for a father who's gone. He's looking for brothers who are gone. And he's driven inwardly by so much hurt and damage. So much. I think that he stands in a, in a balance point, which is the point that I find myself in so often. And it's the difference between being driven from behind or being called from in front. And so there's, a, there's an obvious moment here, isn't there, where as Christians we realise that, that Christ does stand in front of us, calling us. We are called to be followers. And in, in my life there's certainly a contest between the drivenness and the calledness. Now, when I say call and calling, I don't mean, uh, you know, like being called to be um, a pastor or a, a nun or a plumber or whatever. I just mean the, the calling that God places in our heart to be followers. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you the rest. That's the call, isn't it? Jesus says, come, follow me, come with me. And... He finishes, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. It's, it's, it's the opposite of everything that's behind that fellow and everything that's behind us as well. The things that drive us, wounds and hurts and mistakes and fears and dreads and anxieties, the list is almost endless, but none of them are ever gentle or humble. The pressures behind us are vicious and intense and demanding and driving, but the voice of Jesus ahead of us is humble and gentle, and he says you will find rest for your souls. So he needs rest in his soul. He hasn't got it. He needs to find it, and, and so do we. The verse that I just read you from, from Matthew 11 those words of Jesus, they're so familiar to us, aren't they? But can we just try and pause for a minute and think about the way that we, that we receive them, the way that we handle them? Because being humans as we are, I, I feel as though we often take the call that Christ offers us and what we do with it is we turn it, instead of something to respond to, we turn it into just another thing to drive us. One of the things that I hear Christians say so often is, I should pray more. I should read the Bible more. Have you, how often have you said that? You know, it's just, and it's, it's, it's on, it's, it's within us, isn't it? I should, I should, I should do that, I should do that more. We want, we deeply want a spiritual life. And yet, 
the way we try and get a spiritual life is often wrong because instead of responding to the call, we allow ourselves to be driven once again, driven from behind. When our kids were little, I don't remember which little kid had it. It might have been Cassie, but it might have been Bethany. That We had this little plastic dog with a cord on the front and somehow when you pulled it, it had wheels under it and when you pulled it, its legs started to go like this, you know? And then it's, if you pulled it fast enough, its head would go like this as well. And it made this, the faster you went, the louder it got. And there, there would come a point where all of a sudden you could see that the child was no, pull, no longer pulling the dog. The child was terrified of the dog that was pursuing it. And sometimes it feels a bit like that to me. It's just like we, we're, we're being called to follow Christ and, and then all of a sudden we click back into this mode where we... We're no longer just being invited. We're, we're, we're forcing ourselves forward. I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to stop sinning. I am going to live correctly. I am going to, oh, I am going to, you know. And at that point, we're just driven again. Who knows what I'm talking about? So many things to pray about. To read the Bible in a year, which I've done, you need to read four chapters a day. That's such a lot of reading. And if you miss a day, it's eight. And if you have a public holiday weekend, it's like 12 no, no, 16 chapters to read on Monday, Tuesday. Like, it just so quickly overwhelms you, but just stay with it and you do it because I'm going to be a Christian no matter what. And it's so hard, so hard. Jesus himself, when he talks about our, our prayer, our devotional life, he says, go into a secret room, go somewhere, and don't be like the Pharisees, don't babble on, don't make a lot of noise, just, just pray. And he gives us hardly any prayer. You know, there's hardly anything there, is there? Our Father in heaven, etc., etc. It's almost over before you begin. Why does he, why does he want us to pray so little? Because I think that is actually what, in, what that teaches us, among all sorts of other things too. And I think it's, it's because God would have us be with him, deeply with him, not just bringing him our list. There's another man in the Old Testament who, who turns up just a little bit after Jephthah, oh, maybe a century, I'm not really sure actually, Matt can tell us, and he arrives, <laughs> he's, he's looking up his thing already, <laughs> Do you, does anybody remember what a thesaurus is? It's what Christians used before Google to find, <laughs> to find things in the Bible. And the thesaurus, if you had a good one, it was bigger than the Bible, wasn't it? It's like this poor big thing. I could find any, any verse in the Bible. So you go for it, Matt. Okay, I'll read it and you tell me who it is. Oh Lord, it's a psalm. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvellous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Who is it? Do you know? David, yeah. Shortest psalm in the Bible, I think, and the best. I love this. I just love this. I love the picture of him quiet inside and drawing that, that wonderful picture of weaning. So a weaned child no longer 
wakes the whole household up every four hours because they've they've learned a, a, an older way of living, you know, a calmer way of living. If you've worked on the land, weaning calves is just sometimes just the hardest thing, isn't it, to try and keep a cow and a calf apart from each other. And sometimes for us to keep our soul and our spirit a bit separate and to get our soul to just calm down is really hard because within our heads there is such a dialogue. It just Sometimes it just won't shut up, will it? It just constantly on and on and on go the words and you try and pray and it's just more words, you know. But how do you find what David found? How do you find a quietness of soul? Because it's, it's, in, it's in really meeting God that we, or speaking personally, that I'm, that I'm filled with God's spirit. In meeting God, I'm filled with God's Spirit. And, and then I feel, then I know that I'm called. I'm being called onwards with Jesus. And I'm no longer just being driven by my own agenda and my, all my plans and projects and hopes and my guilts and my have to want to be betterers. I'm actually following Jesus. And I dwell on it at a bit of length this morning because I think even though we are Christians, the actual following of Jesus is something that we don't always do. We say we're God's fellows. It's so easy to say that. It's a lot more easy to turn up for church than it is to sit silently in the secret room with God. How do you do it? This is the hardest thing to, to talk about, really. I had a, an interesting experience a few years ago with a, with a uh, I was going to say, I'll say what I was going to say, I had an interesting experience with a nun. It sounds a funny thing to say, doesn't it? But I knew a nun who had motor neurone disease and we corresponded and she passed away a long time ago. But when she um, got to the point where she needed to use a ventilator, which is what I breathe with a lot of the time, she was at a, a worse point. Um, and that's eventually where her end came. But she couldn't tolerate the, the, the pressure of the machine and she just couldn't get her head around it. And I had this little inspiration, probably because I knew she was a nun and this, I, this idea just came into my head. And I said to her, I wrote and I said, here's, here's a ventilation meditation. When you, when you breathe in through the mask, in your heart say, um, Christ is in me, and when you breathe out, say, and I am in him, and do that. And it worked for her. Somehow or other that connected with her. And, and I found myself following that advice. Just I don't know, I sort of stumbled onto this. And Because if you want to pray long and quietly, there's something about our breath that, that fits in with that. And after all, God breathed on us when we were formed. And the, the spirit is the breath of God. And so somehow there's some sort of connection. Christianity has a mysticism in it that dates back through all the centuries, but sometimes we're, we're a bit removed from it. Somehow there is a point where in quietness and, and stillness, there's a meeting point with God that is beautiful. And if you find that place, it's worth 
the effort. Oh, no. I should, no. <laughs> so you see how I did it then? Do you see what I said? Worth the effort. No, it's not the effort. It's not. It's such a delicate thing to follow Christ because we want to be called and yet we decide we're going to follow. It's such a delicate balance. And finding, finding it is so important because once we are, once we are called to follow Christ, that's where the joy is. That's where, that's where we no longer need to know all the answers. We just know that we're being led by Christ and filled with his spirit. And that is the place of transformation and beauty. Look again at Darren's drawing. We're going to follow Jephthah's story again next week. But in the meantime, let me close by um, just reading those words of David together as a prayer, perhaps. Maybe our musicians would like to come back up to the stage as we... As we close, why don't we stand together? I'd like to read this with you. Close your eyes and just pray with me. Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy, occupy myself with things that are too great or too marvellous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Lord, fill us with your spirit and and lead us, draw us into deeper and deeper communion with you. Amen.